I want to invite you to turn to Job. We've got this week and next week as we finish up our series on Job entitled, It Doesn't Seem Like Love. But if you haven't been with us, let me try to give you a quick uh, synopsis while you find Job chapter 21. Uh, Job chapter 21. Job is a, a righteous guy with a really radical story. Job uh, did everything he could under his own power to live right, uh, to do things the right way. Uh, he even, you know, one of the things that impacted me about his story this time around was that he would even come behind his children and offer sacrifices uh, so that they would be right. Like he just wanted to do everything the right way. And in the midst of doing that, uh, he is tested. He is tested and Satan comes and he destroys everything that he's built, his career, uh, his children, his servants. Everything is taken away, and he ends up uh, sitting in a skin that is, has boils all over it and, and talking with his friends about these really tough questions. And so over the last few weeks, we've been wrestling with these questions that Job asks amongst his friends. He's asked questions like, why didn't I die? And we've explored the, the origin of life and, and what it means to be created in the image of God. He asked questions like, why have you made me your target, God? And we wrestled with our purpose as human beings. What is it that we are to do? And, and we realized that, man, the Lord is sovereign. And, and whatever our, whatever's before us, uh, whatever our hand finds to do, we can do it to glorify him. Uh, he asked questions of his friends and, and of God. God, why do you hide your face? Where are you? And as we pressed into that, we realized that, man, faithfulness in those dark seasons always comes before the fruitfulness that we, we find and, and desire. And so today we're going to wrestle with a question that Job asks in Job 21. Why do the wicked continue to live? Why do the wicked continue to live? And you know what's been interesting is while we can't confidently answer any of these questions, right? We can't, we can't just give that answer that ends the conversation. We've been making the case all along that the only way to pursue the truth is to pursue the truth through the gospel. And we found the gospel expressed in this one verse that we're memorizing together as a church, Job 19, 25, over there on the board. I know, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end, he will stand on the dust. And so we've thought through so many, of, so many angles from this verse, and today we're going to press into this idea of, of Christ being our Redeemer. And so as we do that, we want to just read a little bit from the context of, of Job. And we remember that he's having these conversations with his friends where he's really wrestling with, um, man, the, his friends are like, surely you've had to do something wrong. This has to be on you, Job. And Job's wrestling through these questions because he's having a hard time figuring out who God is and, and what is going on in his situation. And so if you would, uh, follow along on the screen or in your Bible or on your phone from Job 21, beginning in verse 4, and we'll read the rest of the chapter and pray for our time in the Word. As for me, Job says, is my complaint against a human being? Then why shouldn't I be impatient? Look at me and shudder. Put your hand over your mouth. When I think about it, I am terrified and my body trembles in horror. Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming powerful? 
Their children are established while they are still alive, and their descendants before their eyes. Their homes are secure and free of fear. No rod from God strikes them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cows calve and do not miscarry. They let their little ones run around like lambs. Their children skip about, singing to the tambourine and lyre, and rejoicing at the sound of the flute. They spend their days in prosperity and go down to Sheol in peace. And yet they say to God, leave us alone. We don't want to know your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what will we gain by pleading with him? But their prosperity is not of their own doing. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is the lamp of the wicked put out? Does disaster come on them? Does he apportion destruction in his anger? Are they like straw before the wind, like chaff a storm sweeps away? God reserves a person's punishment for his children. Let God repay the person himself so that he may know it. Let his own see, let his own eyes see his demise. Let him drink from the Almighty's wrath. For what does he care about his family once he's dead, when the number of his months has run out? Can anyone teach God knowledge since he judges the exalted ones? One person dies in excellent health, completely secure and at ease. His body is well fed and his bones are full of marrow. And yet another person dies with a bitter soul, having never tasted prosperity. But they both lie in the dust, and worms cover them. I know your thoughts very well, the schemes by which you would wrong me. For you say, where now is the nobleman's house, and where are the tents the wicked live in? Have you never consulted those who travel the roads? Don't you accept their reports? Indeed, the evil person is spared from the day of disaster, rescued from the day of wrath. Who would denounce his behavior to his face? Who would repay him for what he's done? He's carried to the grave, and someone keeps watch over his tomb. The dirt on his grave is sweet to him. Everyone follows behind him, and those who go before him are without number. So how can you offer me such futile comfort? Your answers are deceptive. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray, we know that it, it brings light to our path. We pray that through your spirit, you would help us to do just that this morning. And as we wrestle with this question, we would man, fall in love again, that we would return to our Redeemer. And that as we do that, we would just be reminded that you never let go. You're with us. You're mighty to save. All those things that we sing, Father, may we know the truth of them deeply. As we dig into your word today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I became much more serious about my faith uh, around my junior year in high school. And that year... My third period class was Spanish with Mrs. Brochin. My name was Ignacio Esteban. Iggy Steve. Iggy Steve. And uh, third period at North Davies High School was followed by lunch. And the school rules said, you are not to run in the halls to get to lunch. And once you got to the cafeteria, you were not to cut line once you got there. So here I was, a growing Christian, going by the name of Ignacio Esteban. And I want to follow the rules because I'm a growing Christian. And so I would speed walk down the hall, occasionally breaking into a light jog that clearly wasn't a run, before getting to the cafeteria and getting in line and hoping that I was in a good spot. And then I would watch as people, sometimes even friends, cut in front of me. 
the humanity. I was a growing Christian. I was doing the right thing. Lord, why would you allow these people to cut me? This is just awful. It was terrible. Some days, I let it go. Grace. Some days, I held a silent grudge. That person knows better. And other days, I called them out really loud. Loud enough that everyone in the cafeteria knew who the perpetrator was. Clayton's cutting! Clayton is cutting! Mrs. Brochin, Clayton is cutting. I was a junior in high school. But sometimes you just need some truth in your life, right? You know, it's, it's an interesting thing, and it's a silly illustration. But I found this principle to continue to be true in my life often. When I'm trying to be a good person, when I'm working really hard at doing the right thing, it makes me even more frustrated when somebody else breaks the rules. Have you found that to be true in your life? Evil makes us angry because we're proud of our good. Evil often makes us angry because we're proud of our good. And so as we come to this passage today, Job, Job is talking with his friend and he's coming to this similar place. Job has spent all this time reflecting on his life. He's reflected on why these awful things have happened. He's thought about where this is all going to end up, right? Questions of origin and destiny and purpose. And now... It's just beginning to make him angry as he reflects on the idea that there are people full of wickedness who continue to prosper and to gain power. Evil continues to spread despite his righteousness, and that just makes him angry. We all need to take a lesson from Ben and go read our prayer journals in our room. We want people to follow the rules. And, and as we wrestle with our own anger about people that don't follow the rules or the injustices that we see in the world, it brings up this, this list of questions. Where does our desire for rules come from? Because as much as we hate for them to be broken, we also kind of hate that we have them. Why do we get upset when rules are broken? Why do we hide when we break the rules and shout it out when others do? Who makes these rules? Why is it that people who don't follow the rules don't always seem to be punished? Why would a good God allow evil? As we go down that rabbit hole of tough questions, for some of us, we end up concluding that if God is going to allow evil to exist, we'll determine our own rules and we'll stop paying attention to his. It's rooted in questions like Job asks in 21, verse 7, when he says, Why do the wicked continue to live, growing old and becoming powerful? You know, this desire for things to be fair, it puts us in some really tough spots in our day-to-day lives that can cause our anger to boil over. We ask questions like, how are we supposed to tell our kids to keep doing the right thing when there's no punishment for the kid who's doing the wrong thing to them? It's a real-life situation. Why should I be the one to forgive my spouse when they are the one who by their choices have put our relationship in jeopardy? Why is the business down the street flourishing when the owner is nothing but greedy and self-serving? Job hits on this multiple times throughout the chapter, right? Why are the evil prospering? God, this just doesn't make any sense to me. Why do some families battle cancer and sickness when people who have done wicked things are growing old? all around us. 
living with good health. We've heard stories over this series of, of so many kinds of suffering, and I'm sure that we're just scratching the surface. Suffering comes in all shapes and sizes, and as we consider our suffering, we can't help but think about all the evil that continues to surround us. For too many of us, our, our anger towards evil is actually rooted in our pride about our own good efforts. And what's scary is that we don't even realize that's happening. And as that's happening, we, we kind of compound or, or add on to that by thinking that we can really do something about this. We can make change. James 1, 19 and 20. 19 is really familiar for some of us. It says, my dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and, and slow to anger. Your parents probably like to remind you of this verse early in life, right? But then it says this in verse 20. For human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Well, darn. I thought if I got angry enough, I thought if I was able to yell the truth loud enough, it would fix the situation. But scripture says that's just not true. And we are left to question, much like Job, why do the wicked continue to live, God? Why do they prosper? You know, when we find ourselves in this place, it reminds me of a story that we read in John chapter 8. There's a group of religious leaders who were really proud of the good things that they had done in their lives. They'd followed the rules. They continued to uphold the law. And you may be familiar with the story. One day they drag a woman out into the public courts who's been caught in adultery. And as they drag her out, they're challenging Jesus. They're testing him. Jesus, shouldn't you be angry at this? We're angry at this. She's not doing the right thing. And as they do, Jesus approaches. Of course, he's Jesus. He knows everything. He knows he's being tested. And he says to them, he who is without sin can cast the first stone. Silence. The people end up walking away. For many of us, we struggle to put ourselves in the position of those religious leaders. But the reality is, is that when we develop anger over something that's evil, and we're, we're coming to that place because we're proud of all of the good works that we have done, we are in the same place that they were. We're in the same space, the same place. And so we realize, much like Job, that we have this problem with morality. We have this problem with the rules. Because not everyone follows the moral code. Not everybody sees it like we do. And as a result, injustice is everywhere. And even worse, when we really begin to peel back and let Jesus see our heart, if we're really honest, we realize that that injustice includes us. There are things that we do. There are sin that is living inside of us that is adding to the injustice in this world. And so we realize we're not creators of the moral code. We don't get to determine what's right and what's wrong. We don't have the final say. And we end up in these spats as a result. How can we solve these tensions? How did Job process the answer to his own question? And as we've continually seen, we can't totally process out the answer. 
we can't give one solid answer for why the evil, can, why the wicked continue to live. But we can continue to point to this verse that, that Job speaks, these words that Job speaks in, in chapter 19, verse 25, when he says, but I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust. You know, we haven't said this yet about this verse, but there's something incredible to note. Job says this before Jesus is even a thought in people's minds. That doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't exist, but rather that, that who he was had not yet been revealed. Many scholars believe that Job is one of the oldest texts of the Bible. Long before people could hear the phrase, my Redeemer, and think of or have a frame of reference for Jesus. This idea of, of Job saying, my Redeemer lives, is, it's not what we think of in our post-Jesus context. You see, Job's confidence in the truth of the gospel is based on what we would likely label today as blind faith. He simply believes because of how God has revealed himself to Job already. Next week, we're going to finish this series, and we will see that through his suffering, God actually revealed himself to Job already. And, and we're going to see that it, Job's faith isn't built upon the complete revelation of God, but rather his response to what has already been revealed. Knowing that, that even when it comes to knowing God, the best is always yet to come. So what did Job mean when he said his Redeemer lives? Job is recognizing that God, the only one who can right his wrongs, is alive and well. That he's in charge. Even though he has no clue what, what God is up to and, and he can't make any sense of it, he doesn't know how God is going to right his wrongs, he believes that his Redeemer lives. He's recognizing that the God who is good and loving cannot coexist with evil and sin. And so he believes that God loves him and will redeem or make, the right, make right the wrongs that he is encountering. That's a huge idea. That the things that are wrong in our world that we want to be angry at, and we in some ways should be angry at, uh, God has a plan to make those wrongs right, even if we don't understand it. So how do we understand redemption knowing the good news of Jesus' story? Because you see, we're in this fortunate position where Christ has been revealed. He has come. He has dwelt with us. And he has gone to prepare a place for us. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. And so we see that redemption comes through the blood of Christ. It's something that, that was given to us on the cross. But we also see that it's the riches of his grace that he richly pours out on us. In other words, there is no end to the redemption of Christ. It continues to come and to flow into our lives, to make, wrong, make right the wrongs that exist in us. But then we also read this in Galatians 3.13. It says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because it's written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. You see, even though Christ has the riches of grace that, that last forever and that, that give us redemption, he actually gave up his right to defend himself against immoral acts to redeem your immoral acts. That's crazy. 
That in a moment where Christ could have stood for justice and said, you know what the right thing is? The right thing is not to kill me because I didn't do anything wrong. He took on our immoral acts. He took on our curse so that we could live forever. Redemption is an incredible idea. But for some of you, maybe you're still sitting out there skeptical and you're like, well, good. I'm grateful for that good idea, but, but God should still do something about all this evil. Why do the wicked continue to live? He should redeem my life because of all the suffering that I've endured. Let's say that I needed to travel out of town for a week, and I left Caitlin with three kids all by herself. After a long week, probably longer for her than for me, I fly home, I pay my parking fee at the airport, and while I'm driving home, I stop to get some flowers for Caitlin. I pull in the driveway, I walk up to the door, and Caitlin meets me there. She hugs me, eyes beaming. She looks at the flowers, and she says to me, you shouldn't have done this. Why did you give me these flowers? This is amazing. Why did, you, why did you do this? And then imagine that I looked back at her and I said, it was my duty. <laughs> Pretty sure the rest of the welcome home party isn't happening. You see, too often, that becomes our expectation of the Lord and his grace. He's He's bringing us this great gift of redemption. He's working to right the wrongs that exist, not only in our lives, but in this entire world. And when one thing goes right, like it's, like it's, not, like it's, not, it's not this expectation. He didn't die on the cross to redeem your sins because he had to. He did it because he wanted to. He did it because he loves you. God redeems you not out of debt to you, but rather out of a desire for you. And that shift is, is huge. It's incredible. You see, you and I get so caught up in anger at evil that we forget God's desire to redeem us from our evil so that we can be together with him. It's not this contract. It's a loving relationship with the creator of the universe. Isaiah 44, 22 says this. God is speaking. He says, I've swept away your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like a mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. You see, God's heart in redeeming us is that we would just return. He wants to be in relationship with us. It's not just to fulfill his obligations or his duty. And so the question becomes, how do you return to the Lord? I don't know your story. I don't know why you're here today. But I know this. The riches of God's grace and, and the riches of, of what he gives to us in redemption are yours for the taking. And because he's redeemed you, he wants you to return to him. He wants to be in relationship with you. And, and maybe you're in a season of life where returning to the Lord seems really difficult. You're asking questions like, why are you hiding your face, God? I don't, I don't feel you. I don't sense you. I'm going through a really hard time, Lord. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I'm ready for that redemption right now. How do I return to the Lord in those seasons? Today I want to give you three ideas, three next steps that you can take in terms of thinking about returning to the Lord. 
It's this continual process in the Christian life, uh, repenting, turning away from yourself and turning towards him. How do we do that? Number one is to preach the gospel to yourself each morning. Preach the gospel. What do you mean, preach the gospel to yourself each morning? You know, the reality is, is that we wake up and, and many times our world is full of uh, messages that are all about uh, propping yourself up. And the reality is, we can't prop ourselves up. The Lord is the one that must fuel us. But too often, we, we run past who we are and we just expect these things of God that he can't give to us. And so that narrative might go something like this. Hey, Blake, you should be reminded that you're going to face sin and its effects today. Come to think of it, there's sin present in your life. And then you realize there's nothing I can do to redeem myself or the world around me. I can't right a wrong. I can't make God's righteousness happen. But then you remember Job 19.25. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust. And so I'm going to live in light of that redemption. I'm going to return to my God today, and I'm going to let him work through me. But too many times our day starts without preaching the gospel to ourselves, and we kind of forget who we are and who God is. So what's your plan for preaching the gospel to yourself? You know, there's a reason that we ask everyone to be memorizing Job 19.25 because, man, just reciting that verse is a great way to get the gospel in you quick. Another great one is Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Man, that's it. Maybe you're more of a devotional person. I would recommend, um, man, I love it. I've been going through this whole leg thing, and um, I'm going to call him out and embarrass him anyway. Jason Underwood, I love that guy. He's like, hey, man, you got new morning mercies? I was like, I don't. He's like, I'm bringing a copy to you. And it's been one of the greatest encouragements uh, through this journey, a great devotional by Paul David Tripp. And it does a great job of reminding us not just of the goodness of Jesus, but also our own brokenness. Because, see, as you preach the gospel to yourself, it's not just about remembering how good God is. It's about remembering how much you need God. And remembering how much you need God is directly tied remembering how broken you are without him. Preach the gospel to yourself every morning. Number one, how else do we return to God? The reality is, is we have to eliminate sin. And that's a daunting task. 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3 says this. Dear friends, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet been revealed. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. See, we have this big problem in our society where dealing with our sin is really about managing what other people think about our sin rather than actually uprooting and becoming pure children of God. And when we lapse into managing our sin... We become our own God. When dealing with our sin is about making sure that other people don't know what's going on, we're setting ourselves up to be God instead of serving our God. It's much easier to be angry at evil in general than to eliminate specific sin. 
But you know what? Jesus didn't die for you so that you could take the easy road. He died for you so that you could take the road that leads to an eternity with him. You return to your Redeemer by eliminating sin. It's one of the things that that we're called to do. And the temptation for each one of us is to manage the perception of our sin and tell ourselves that we can do this, and when we get ourselves right, then we can walk in the light. But when we try to eliminate sin on our own, what we're really saying is that we believe more in our own willpower than in God's power through weakness. So when I say that a way to return to God is to eliminate sin, what I'm not saying to you is you should go work really hard on getting that sin out of your life. What I'm saying to you is in community, as a body of believers, in your community group or with an accountability partner, you have to walk in weakness and you have to shed light on those sins so that the Lord can heal you from them. And if we are not intentionally taking steps towards that, then we're setting ourselves up to be our own God. We're saying that we can, we can manage and we can create a life that is good enough while at the same time continuing to point and be angry at the evil that we see around us, not addressing the evil within us. My Redeemer lives. I want to return to my Redeemer. That requires me to preach the gospel to myself every day. It also requires me to eliminate sin. And last but not least, we've got to move quickly through guilt. To move quickly through guilt. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 become a passage that, man, when I'm feeling, I just come back to this. I love it. Hang with me for just a minute. This is going to be awesome. Christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. In the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered the most holy place once for all time, not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow sprinkling those who are defiled sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we can serve the living God? You're like, what's that? What is going on here? In the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, you had all these sacrifices and all these offerings that had to be made when you were dealing with your sin. And every time you're, you're dealing with this, there's, you're bringing an animal and the priest is killing that animal and he's offering it you know, at the temple. And so you can just begin to imagine if everyone were doing this, like let's just take our church, for example. We've got a couple hundred people and every time you sin, you're bringing an animal to be sacrificed. You got the image in your head yet? Like people lined up with sheep outside and then you come in and they're slaughtering animals. Like it's... It's very messy, it's very tedious, it's very long and very drawn out. But every time, if you want your conscience to be cleared, if you, if you want to feel like you're doing the right thing, if you don't want to live in your guilt, you've got to line up with your sheep. This is like, it's insanity. And it's why we need Jesus. And this passage, man, it tells us Christ, he went into that place And he made a sacrifice once for all time. Once for all time. Notice what it says. That it cleanses our consciences from dead works. So today, you may be sitting there, and you're like, man, Blake, you don't know the bad things that I've done. 
You're right, I don't. But what I do know is that Christ has gone in once for all to give eternal redemption so that you don't have to live there with that guilty conscience. You give it to him and he cleanses it. Move quickly from your guilt. You don't have to operate out of guilt or comparison anymore. Not because of anything you've done, not because of a right that you've done to try and cancel out your wrong, but because Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, has gone into the temple and made a sacrifice once for all time that gives you eternal redemption and clears your conscience. Guilt is a great motivator, but it is a terrible master. And you don't have to live in guilt anymore. So as you try to return to the Lord today, don't be condemned by the things of your past. But move forward with the God who has provided the ultimate sacrifice for you. Yesterday <clears throat> was uh, a fun day for me. Um, if this is your first time here, uh, or maybe you haven't been in a while, uh, I have no boot. The terrible dad joke is, I gave it the boot. Ah, <laughs> Got to get one of those in, right? I've, I've been told through text that uh, uh, I'm a comedian. So uh, one, of the, one of the community kids is like, that comedian guy at church? And I was like, yeah, that's me. So giving the boot the boot. But yesterday was awesome um, because the go-kart came out again. I know, it's, it's so fun. It's great. Um, it was a beautiful day. Family was in, and uh, the go-kart comes out at Eric and Sherry's house. And, you know, it, it probably wasn't as sentimental for everybody else. I'm sure it wasn't. But it really was a picture of redemption. Just seeing the cart come out, kids getting in. Uh, the, one of the funnest things, y'all are going to judge my parenting already. Magnolia loves the go-kart. <laughs> I ride, I ride, I ride. And I'm like, yeah, we're putting our two-year-old in a go-kart. Same go-kart that broke my ankle six weeks ago. It's awesome. It's been so much fun. It was just so much fun seeing all that. And uh, Preston drove around. I, all that to say I didn't get in the go-kart myself. Not quite there yet. Not quite ready. But um, it was just fun to see everybody doing that. It was, it was a great picture of redemption. But I want you to to imagine with me for just a second that scene. We're driving in the same field. We can kind of identify the spot where the, the, the wreck happened. And I want, to put your, I want you to put yourself in Preston's shoes. Imagine Preston driving around the field and never taking his eyes off of the side of the crash. You know, it may be fine as long as you're driving towards the crash, but then you turn around to come back and you're like. Preston, watch where you're going. I just don't want to take my eyes off of where the crash was. Right? I don't want to crash again. So I'm just going to keep an eye on that. Wherever I'm going, I'm going to keep an eye on the crash. It's craziness. We keep our eyes on where we're going. You know, for so many of us, there's one or two things that are holding our attention away from the Lord. And they're causing us to crash again and again and again and again. 
Because we're just afraid to take our eyes off of that place. We're afraid to take our eyes off of that place where we've, we've crashed and we've failed. And because we're afraid to do that, we continue to crash and we continue to fail. It might be what we've talked about today, the very problem of evil. Something incredibly unfair that's happened to you or in your world. And you just can't wrap your brain around it. It's like, I, I can't stop thinking about that. And because I can't stop thinking about that, I can't return to the Lord. It might be struggling to have faith that God is really with us. And you're, just, you're left wondering whether you should trust him to be there at the end of the journey or not. Maybe you're wrestling with your purpose for being alive today because of some kind of hardship that's stripping away pieces of your identity. Maybe you're just wrestling to see the image of God reflected in yourself. You don't feel worthy. To truly know that God created you beautifully is a challenge. And whatever it is, stop driving with your eyes on those things and start looking forward to where the Lord wants to take you. Our Redeemer lives. He's righting the wrongs in his time. He's writing the greatest story ever told. And he gave up his only son to make sure that your life could be redeemed. That your life could be bought back and used for purposes far greater than you would ever imagine. And he's doing all that for his glory and for your good. Folks, I don't know the answer to all those questions. But I know that my Redeemer lives. And at the end, he will stand on the dust. Would you return to him today, tomorrow, Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday? Return, because our Redeemer lives. Let me pray for us. Father, I just come to you uh, myself confessing that too often my eyes are on the crash site. That my faith fails because I trust more in myself than I do in you. So give me faith, Lord. Help me to know that it is well. Father, as we gather here this morning as a church, I pray that you would uh, do the same work in us. That you would help us to, to see the way forward with you. For some of us, we've never started a relationship with you. We've never come to you the first time, nonetheless return. And if that's the case, Lord, I pray that those people that are here this morning in that situation, that you would call them to yourself. Help them to know that you are real, that you are their redeemer, and that you are alive and well. That you love them. Father, for so many of us, we're struggling, we're wrestling, working through hard things. And I pray, God, that you would give us confidence and faith in you to take our next step. Thank you, God, for who you are, for how you love us, for sending your son Jesus to die for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.